This morning I want to uh, return to a theme which we've uh, explored um, uh, from time to time and uh, in a focused way and at other times more uh, in passing and that's the that's the theme of the self and the teaching of not self and I want to particularly do so through uh, focusing on what I'm calling the thinning of the self which is a highly desirable ideal in contemporary America and so people are ready to sign up I think we have found the right brand for uh, transformative practice right thin yourself of course dangers of using that metaphor but I found it, it helpful so I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit but the, uh, as many of you know, the uh, teaching of anatta, or uh, translated as not-self, is a teaching right at the center of our transformative practice. We may often wonder, when we do insight meditation, what are the insights that we have? And in the tradition, there are actually three main areas of insight. One of them is around understanding impermanence. A second is around understanding the nature of suffering and the roots of suffering. And by implication, the nature of freedom and the roots of freedom. That's the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And the third area is talked about as uh, understanding anatta which we could say is understanding our nature, uh, the nature of the self and the, and the teaching of not-self. And it's uh, quite a confusing area, as, as we know. Uh, it can be very difficult to understand uh, conceptually and is, in my own teaching experience, a teaching that often is hard to hard to grasp. Um, and so what I want to do today is take an approach which is more simple and practical related to this teaching and point to a series of very concrete practices that can help us to explore this uh, territory, which is very crucial and it really connects this teaching of not-self and uh, the nature of who we are uh, connects with some very deep aspirations that we have, uh, that we uh, have and that are sometimes expressed in a variety of ways, a variety of traditions, questions of how can I be uh, most authentic? How can I be, quote unquote, myself? Who am I? What's, the, what's my deep nature? That whole series of questions uh, are questions that are among the most profound that humans ever ask of themselves, that humans ever ask of life. And so what I'd like to do is try to be simple about it, not so much to unpack the traditional teaching and how that's explained, although I'll touch on that at times, but to really talk about four ways that we can understand this sense of thinning of the self and point to very concrete practices which you might want to do in the next week or two or until I return. 
uh, <laughs> that would be three weeks. That's up to you. Um, and I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk first about briefly about some of the confusions of this this area, but mostly talk about uh, four ways to understand the thinning of the self. The first is to understand the experience of flow as a very, uh, in a sense, ordinary way to understand not-self. We'll talk more about that. Then secondly, the practice of looking for where the self is thick. That's another major practice, which we do. And then thirdly, look at some further ways which are very basic to our practice, to our mindfulness practice, to our metta or loving-kindness practice, some further ways that we can understand how we have these practices that thin the self. And then fourthly, point to one of the main ways that the um, full thinning of the self can manifest at times (coughs) in a sense of deep awareness freed of a sense of self. Those are the four areas plus plus more the introduction uh, through talking a little bit about the about the challenges of looking at this topic. So it'll be practically based and I'll give a number of practices. Some of them we did in the in the session. I'll come back to those. So it is a confusing area. You know, some of you know on the on the web there's a lot of Jewish Buddhist humor. One of them is about not-self. It goes, if there's no self, whose arthritis is this? <laughs> and, you know, the, the language about this area can get very confusing. You know, even the translation, I think, is confusing. Uh, often the translation is no-self, which I think is a bad translation. The word is anatta, and uh, the A at the beginning of that word has the same kind of uh, grammatical function as the word A often does in English and in many other languages. It means not, like uh, amoral or atypical, right? Very same, same kind of construction. So uh, there can be a lot of confusion uh, using the term no-self and thinking that somehow we have to get rid of ourself, which is especially confusing in this culture because almost the center of our culture seems to be the you know, pursuit of wealth, happiness, and so forth, even in the Declaration of Independence. And so, and often our contemporary life is organized, as we know, in a very individualistic way. So what happens when that culture collides with the teaching of anatta? <laughs> um, actually, some interesting things happen, but it, it's, uh, it can be, can be very, very confusing. And then the language, language is sometimes no self. Sometimes you hear words in some traditions about true self. Sometimes you have self capitalized, so it's S with a capital S. You hear words like Buddha nature. Some of the practices like metta seem to cultivate uh, loving kindness for self, loving kindness for others. So what's going on? Right? Sometimes we think that we're uh, getting rid of the ego, right? As if uh, that means getting rid of the self, with ego seeming 
to suggest uh, self-centeredness <laughs> or being egotistical. A lot of, I, I would say, uh, confusion connected with the words, the meanings, and so forth. Um, and it can be it can be hard experience, you know. Uh, just to, I, I heard a story of one young man who was uh, 20 years old. Someone in a retreat talked about the teaching of no self. And he got very, very angry after hearing that. He left school and he left, he actually, I think, left the retreat. You know, and he said, if there's no self, what meaning does school have? Right? So it's, it can be confusing and even... Uh, um, a teaching that has some uh, can have ne- negative impact if it's not held in the right way, and uh, you know, and if to make th- if 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 that wasn't uh, challenging enough, sometimes in the Buddhist tradition there can be some uh, lack of clarity. Uh, the Buddha taught about anatta or not self, but. Uh, there may, I think there were actually more nuanced teachings at times where the Buddha actually went beyond affirming not-self. And there's a very uh, famous teaching in which he was asked by uh, a wandering yogi or yogin named Vachagata. You can find this and read this text. It's in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. I think around... Somewhere around the seventieth discourse, if you if you if you find those, if you could you could look it up. And very interesting discourses where this wandering uh, yogin comes up and asks the Buddha, "Is there a self?" He's silent. Is there no self? And he's silent. And the wandering yogin then walks away. <laughs> not fully satisfied. And Ananda asked the Buddha, why did you reply like that? And he says, if I had said there was a self, he would have fallen into one trap, which is that of fixating too much on individuality. And if I had said no self, he would have fallen into another trap, which in Indian philosophy at that time was called, uh, would have been a form of nihilism or annihilationism, there's nothing is real, you know. And so he, he suggested that the response to this question is more of a middle way. It's more nuanced in a sense, that concepts actually are not very adequate. And I was thinking that the, um, the, the uh, great teacher in the Thai forest tradition, which has influenced our approach, uh, Achan Cha, used to say, the teachings about no self or not self are not true. The teachings about self are not true as well. So now pointing, I think that there's actually, you know, what we might call, there's a middle way. And so, if that didn't fully clarify everything, <laughs> then I will, I will turn to the practical teachings of this. Okay where I think it can be explored better. And if, if any of you are new to these uh, confusions about self and not self, and um, I've introduced you to them, then I please accept my apologies. <laughs> and we'll tr- try to stay with the practical dimensions of the question. 
Okay. Which is, I think, what Achan Chah and actually the Buddha were pointing to. Don't get too caught in thinking about it, because it actually is um, tricky from a conceptual or theoretical point of view, but from a practical point of view, I think it's less tricky. That's what I'll try to suggest. So these four areas I'll point to that relate to the thinning of the self. The first is uh, the first is having that sense of flow in experience. The second is looking for the thick self. The third is some further ways of thinning the self. And then the fourth is cultivating a large awareness free of a sense of self or, or not self. So, so first the sense of flow. Sometimes here, when we've looked at these questions of self and not self, uh, I've actually learned from our, our work together that uh, the, I think the sense of being with a flow where there's little or no sense of self, which is an experience that's very accessible to all of us and that we've had in different ways, is a very good pointer to what these teachings are about, this teaching of not-self. That I think that we've all had experiences where self-consciousness drops away, self-image drops away, and even a sense of being separate or different falls away. And, and we can, I'll, I'll get, uh, in a moment, we can also cultivate that in meditation as well. And so, but I think there are very uh, common experiences that we might have. One is where we're totally immersed in an activity. You know, where there's total immersion and there's almost not room for a sense of self. And these are not always so common to experience. I, I had a very strong experience of this uh, for the first time probably, or that's, that's what comes to mind. Uh, in college, um, I didn't usually pull what uh, were called all-nighters. Anyone pull all-nighters sometimes to complete work? Uh, I didn't usually do that, but one, one evening I did. And I was immersed in this topic like for four or five hours. And I, th- I may have stayed up uh, much of the night. And I walked into the dawn and I was in an altered state. I had been in this immersed place where there was no sense of self. I was just totally with the flow of the activity. No thoughts of, will I get it done? Is this good? Etc. But totally immersed. And it was, it was an uncommon experience. But there was something that was, and, and there was, like I said, no experienced sense of self during that experience, just total immersion. And I think we also experience that at times in other activities. Um, sometimes we may be with people we're extremely close to and there's just no sense of being separate or different, right? That can be where there's a lot of love, uh, sometimes in love making, uh, in experiences of just being with someone where there's a total kind of flow, lack of self, lack of self-consciousness. Of course, we speak, we do things, but there's some lack of self. And that's, I think that's an experience that we all have to some extent. It may not last, or the sense of self may come up. It can also appear in something like art or music, right? Where we're totally with the artistic activity. You know, and we've sometimes in this group, we've talked about, artists have been here, and they've talked about those experiences when one is just in that flow of artistic creation. There can be a sense of flow or it can be with music. One can be 
with a sense of just being with the music and um, not being self-conscious. We know, you know, if you see a jazz musician and the jazz musician thinks, wasn't that a good riff? It's gone, right? At that moment, right? And it's actually, one is so much with the flow, there aren't those kind of thoughts. Or I was thinking of a, a short poem that came out of a conversation with my mother, Bernice, who is, who is here. <laughs> and uh, this, see if I can reconstruct the poem. It went some, we were talking about music, and she's a musician. And, and she said, music, we were talking about concentration practice. <laughs> in meditation, you say, music is my concentration practice. When one is performing, it's not good to have a sense of self. You have to let yourself be taken over by the music. That kind of immersion. So there's that flow. So, you know, this can be in in sports as well. I've been interested in how this appears in sports. And um, two examples there. Uh, One interesting one was, uh, I remember, I, I like to watch uh, basketball. Uh, it's my favorite sport. I once wrote an essay like on how th- there is a tremendous mind-body-heart unity in basketball, unlike some other sports. So anyway, I was interested in that. And there was, um, some of you may remember this, there was an M- NBA Finals when Michael Jordan was playing, I think in the early 90s. and. It was against Portland. And at one point, he hit seven straight three-point shots. This is what is sometimes called being in the zone, which is another expression in sports for being with the flow of things, right? And it's the aspiration of athletes to be in the flow. And I, I have a friend, actually, named Andrew Cooper, who wrote a wonderful book called Playing in the Zone exploring the spiritual dimensions of sports, which is quite, and they're amazing stories, you know. And, and Michael Jordan hit seven straight three-pointers, and then he walked by the press table, and he went like this, you know, as if saying, it's not me, right? And of course, that also meant there was self-consciousness, right, at that point. So he missed his next shot. Right? Or here's a passage from the another basketball player named uh, Bill Russell. Okay? (laughs) Every so often, a Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game and would be magical. That feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. At that special level, all all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken, even before the other team brought the ball in bounds. I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, except that I knew everything would change if I did. My premonitions would be consistently correct And I always felt then that I not only knew all the Celtics by heart, but also all the opposing players, and that they all knew me. There have been many times in my career when I felt moved or joyful, but these were the moments when I had chills pulsing up and down my spine. And so that's that's a sense of, of flow. 
which we access sometimes. And of course, we could interpret our practice as saying, let those kind of moments be more and more. Right? Let me be in that full immersion without a strong sense of self more and more. Because you know what? Probably when we look to those experiences, they are among the most meaningful experiences in our lives. Right? And ones that we would love to have more. And so we could interpret meditation as pointing in that direction. So really it's, it's an accessible way to talk about not-self. Because we actually find that these highly meaningful experiences may be precisely what we most want. You know? And they came without any label, not-self, which could, could have confused us, right? But when you look at them, there is just the immersion. And so we can uh, also cultivate that in practices uh, such as we did at the end of the session, where I said, just be with the flow of sensations for three minutes and try to just let it be, let the process occur. We can practice this. And one of the, for me, one of the benefits of focusing on a topic like this is it actually can bring a lot of interest and inquiry to our practice. You know, and, and uh, bring energy, interest, inquiry, and avoid sometimes what happens in our practice where we have, if, you know, in our terms of our daily practice, something what I talk about a lot is we can have our practice become generally pleasant, calm, and vague. That's <laughs> the, what, the uh, danger of daily practice. <laughs> You know, it can be like that. And so when you have interest, and just like for three minutes, say, let me just be with the flow for three minutes, you'll cultivate that quality. I think three minutes is a good amount, because if I said that for half an hour, it could be too difficult, and we'd lose focus. But three minutes can work. So just to be with the flow, or you can be with that in nature. Let me just be with the flow of experience without uh, bringing anything. And if I notice thinking, just come back. It helps to do this in a meditation session, because we need sometimes a certain amount of concentration. Um, and so finding times when one can just be with the flow. Meditation is partly set up to do that, because we notice when there's thinking, we keep coming back. And so trying to uh, find these ways of experiencing uh, just sensations, just, okay, I'm here, okay, now there is a sensation in my my leg, now there's a thought, okay, let it go. Okay, now there's uh, a sound that I hear. Oh, now there's another sensation in my arm or in my chest or whatever. And just being with that, letting that process occur, and it's like just being with the river flow, so to speak. Just being with the flow. And try it first for a few minutes, you can make it happen for longer periods of time. You know, and for me, sometimes that's been a practice. I've sometimes done retreats where that's the only practice I did. And just and, and it helps to have for the concentration to deepen to really stay with it. But that can be an experience. And when one just stays with that, one is approaching that kind of flow experience, such as we have in these more uh, everyday uh, contexts. But and we. So we can cultivate it in everyday context, we can cultivate it in meditation. So a second area, which is of course related, is seeing where the self is thick. So I'm using these metaphors of thick and thin. 
you know, rather than no self or 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 you know ego or something like that. I think I think we want to see where the self gets thick or strong and study that. And it's especially where the sense of self may also be connected with some distress or suffering. There often is a connection. <coughs> so um, we have to study all the manifestations of our mind, of our sense of self. So this is a lifetime practice, right, or lifetime inquiry. Uh, the great Zen teacher uh, Dogen said in the 12th century, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And then he said, <coughs> to study the self is to learn to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And that's often been a guide for Zen practice. A very, very another way of expressing what we're looking at. And so we want to use uh, our core tools of mindfulness and metta and see where the self gets thick. You know, and we could describe a few types of situations where the, the self is thick. One might be where we have a lot of thinking preoccupied or in some area. And we want to notice that. And again, this is not to condemn it or judge it, but just to study it. You know, the whole presumption of our practice is that the mindful and heartful examination of experience is healing and transformative. That caring presence brought to experience helps us see what's there and helps us transform what's not skillful. That's our, our practice. And it's difficult to look deeply into the self. It's not easy. Uh, from, from Yeats, the poet Yeats, the Irish poet Yeats, it takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. I believe that. This is, a, this is not a light thing which we've undertaken here. You know, and it, it, go, it goes deeply. So we look to where there's uh, thought preoccupation. One of the ways we study the self. We just notice it. Oh, here's my top ten. We don't say, let me get rid of the bad top ten. We just look at it. Over time, things get thinned as we look at them. You know, much like the story that I, I tell a lot, where I was first meditating, I noticed I planned all the time. I was planning all the time, all the time. And for a given situation, I'd say, gosh, I planned 80 times for that. 20 is adequate. <laughs> you know? And so I could let it go some, right? I could see, because that's, that's again, a, fruit, a normal fruit of mindfulness. You just see the pattern, and you say, oh, look at that. But before I looked at it, I didn't know I planned so much. You know, other people might have told me that, but, <laughs> but I didn't know that. And so we look at the patterns. We look at main patterns of reactivity. Part of the way to thin the self is to become experts on all of our patterns of reactivity because there's typically going to be a sense of self there. And reactivity means both pushing away and grabbing hold. Study all of those. Become an expert on your own reactivity. Because we don't put that in the advertising materials for Spirit Rock, do we? Come here and learn, learn the wonders of seeing how you lose it. <laughs> Would that sell? <laughs> Not 
not to the general public at once. We have to go with the motto of becoming a thin self. That will, that will, that will sell. And it actually is true. When I, when I go to retreats, I typically lose weight. But that's not what I was thinking of when I had the, <laughs> 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 the topic. Because no, I often have a practice. I will not eat when I'm full. That goes a long way. You know, um, so, but uh, yeah, I'm thinking of thinning the self in that this different way. Okay. So look at look at self-image, right? Look at reactivity. Look at preeminent thought patterns. Look at where there's self-image, and you can ha- you know have a self-image as being a meditator. You know, anyone who does a lot of meditation always has to look or has to look at the question of I'm a good meditator or I'm not. I remember one retreat I had always thought I was a good meditator and then one retreat I I had a cold, I was sniffling, I couldn't concentrate and I thought I was making uh, a mess for everyone else and I saw all this sense of self come. Oh, I'm a bad meditator, what are they going to think of me? You know, and it, it actually I sat with it. It was it was not fun. It was it was actually quite a bit of fear because because these thoughts were just coming, and you know. But I stayed with it, and my sense of self-image got deconstructed a little bit. Doing that, that's what happens. I could watch it. it. Was it was hard? It was painful at times, and a lot of what we're talking about here is not easy. We have to work with it. And so we study self-image you know, in various ways, the various manifestations of self-image, who I think I am. We look at uh, the judgmental mind, when do my judgments get thick, a very wonderful way to see where the self is thick. Look where you're judgmental, of self or of other. A very good, quick trip to the to a sense of self. That's why when you transform the judgmental mind, it actually can have a big impact and help with thinning the self. And we also, over time, see places that we might call places of chronic stuckness. Some of them might be related to wounds from our past. Some of these might be looked at in psychotherapy. Um, but in our transformative practice, some of what occurs that uh, is to see where the self is thick, and sometimes it's thick because we've been wounded in the past, and we want to protect ourselves. And we create a self to protect, and over, and that's of course, we have to be gentle and skillful with those manifestations of a thick self. And be skillful over time, there can be healing. And where we formally tried to protect and create something to safeguard ourselves, we can work through that and let go of that. It's part of our practice. And that's what comes up too. So you see this whole area of seeing where the self is thick is a, is a huge part of our practice and a challenging part. And so those are all suggest ways of practicing in meditation, in daily life, in relationships, sometimes doing psychological work. Major part of our practice. And then there are further ways, this is my third area, there are further ways of thinning the self. You know, and a lot of our practices do that, the mindfulness practice, where we are thinning the self simply by continually noticing much of the phenomenon I talked about, noticing when the self is there, just tracking it. Um, We do this also with our metta practice, with our practice of developing loving-kindness, where we 
bring that sense of warmth and kindness uh, to ourselves, which actually, interestingly, metta for self sometimes cuts through our sense of self. Isn't that interesting? Do you know what I mean by that? That when we act, that actually where we have that thick sense of self, sometimes from wounds, and we bring metta to there, it actually can uh, work through. Sometimes it helps to work through some places where the self is thick. And there can be an ease and a more arresting in warmth and kindness over time. So the heart practices can play a huge role in, in uh, thinning the self. Loving-kindness practice, again, we bring it out to uh, others. We bring that sense of warmth to others so we're not so focused on self. You know? And, of course, all the ways in daily life that we care for others. A lot of us, through our work, through our relationships, through our families, we bring that sense of care to others. You know, we see where we um, are thick a little bit, you know, and some of what we talked to, have talked about in previous weeks, it's also, I think, this sense of thinning the self has social implications, you know, that, again, if we have a highly individualistic culture, we would think so. We do this practice and maybe we have a wider sense of self, you know, that I've talked at times about how that wider sense of self is important to actually deal with our larger issues. <coughs> to have a sense of self which isn't so uh, focused on this individual, but can realize the ecological uh, crisis and make hard choices or decrease consumption or whatever, or be part of community efforts, or the way we've looked in some of the past weeks at issues of race, and to really say, okay, there, there are, uh, at this time particularly, we're noticing how um, uh, certain people, particularly African Americans and uh, Latinos, are often um, receive uh, police violence and brutality more often, and of course associated with all sorts of issues of the way that we haven't really come to grips with the legacy of slavery and racism in this country, you know, and that to take interest in that is another way, I think, of having more of a sense of connection and thinning the self. So, and it actually helps to be able to deal with those issues. So there, you know, there's, there are individual aspects of this, there are relational aspects, and I think there are larger collective aspects of thinning, of thinning the self. <clears throat> a few stories. Um, this is a story that I, I heard from my, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, Ron Smith, who lives in uh, the Bay Area, and he works in Berkeley with the homeless. And he uh, was talking with someone, and uh, he found out that this person had been, um, he had been a burglar. And he, uh, but he started, at a certain point, he started to develop compassion for the people he had burglarized. And he stopped doing it. And he, this is the story he told to Ron. Uh, he said, you know, what happened especially to me that really triggered this uh, change was that I myself got burglarized. <laughs> I reflected. I used to do that <laughs> until I got burglarized. Then I didn't do it anymore. I felt violated. After that, I couldn't do it to others. So, 
you know, so this was a, a form of compassion coming out, and really in our own lives, that compassion comes out, and these heart practices of loving kindness and compassion, forgiveness, uh, gratitude, even joy, are extremely helpful ways to thin the self. That staying with regular practices in these areas will continually thin the self, just as it, the same with our mindfulness practice. I think also, again, bringing that sense of uh, thinning the self into our work. Many of us do various kinds of service, or we help others, or we're engaged in the helping professions. And these can all be powerful places for that further thinning of the self. Again, in, some of us may do social action. Again, I think this, this sense of many ways that we, that we thin the self. Another way that I like a lot that's been important for me, and we've sometimes talked about here, is doing empathy practice, you know, which we've especially studied here as having a practice whereby regularly we tune in to the feelings of another person, and it could also be towards ourselves, and then what seems to matter for the person. And we can do that as a practice, particularly powerful practice, when there's some polarization with another. In which case, typically empathy goes out the window, right? And a sense of self develops doing empathy practice initially where it's easy, you know, where, where we can do that just with people we don't have any issues with or problems with, but then bringing it to situations where there's some difficulty or conflict, a very powerful way of um, thinning the self, you know, a, more a relational practice that depends on mindfulness and the ability to tune in to another person's feelings. Try that the next time you have a, uh, a level five out of ten difficulty with another person. Go to empathy. Say, just take a moment, maybe take a bathroom break, (laughs) and go and say, what is this person feeling? What matters for this person? That can really cut through the polarization and the, what might be a thick sense of self for both of you, for both of us. So those are a variety of ways to practice with our mindfulness in a lot of ways, the heart practices, empathy practice, our work, our families, a lot of ways to thin the self. And then, lastly, I want to finish with looking at this, one of the ways, one of the places that this practice points, which I could call a awareness that is, that is uh, actually free of content and free of a sense of self, and that has the heart there in a deep way. This is what is pointed to, I believe, by our practice. This is something we touch at times, but that, again, much like we want to cultivate more and more of that sense of flow, we can see our practice as opening more and more to that sense of a deep awareness that's clear, that has wisdom, that has the heart there, but that doesn't have increasingly any sense of self can just be present. We may experience this again in some of those moments of flow, or being with the trees at certain moments, or being with someone we're really caring for, where there's just that awareness. This enters into the realm that we sometimes call mystical, where there's this strong sense. And I just wanted to finish with a few expressions of this, and we can open things up to to talk together. One comes from the great uh, teacher Deepama, There's a wonderful book in the bookstore of her her life. She's one of the great practitioners in our tradition in the 20th century. She died in the early 90s. 
Sylvia got to know her pretty well. I got to know her some too, because because uh, she came to visit Insight Meditation Society at a time when I was living in the cottage across the street from the center, which is, I think, now staff housing, but I was able to live in it for about eight months. And she came, and they needed a place for her, and it actually had a few bedrooms. I had the luxury of being there for eight months and doing practice. And, uh, and so they asked if I would vacate it for a week and let her be there, but then I got to hang out with her some. And, and so she was from, you know, Sylvia has talked about her, I'm sure, at times. And she, uh, she came out here at times, and she was, uh, had very, very deep concentration. was very, very still. Uh, Jack Kornfield once asked her, what is there in your mind? What's your normal experience? He sa- she said, there are only three things. There is concentration, there is peace, and there is metta, or loving kindness. That's it. That's what's there. In the uh, Tibetan uh, Dzogchen tradition, it's said that this basic, they sometimes talk about it as the nature of mind, or might use language like our basic nature. And they say this has three aspects. There's the clarity aspect, the luminosity of awareness. There's also the sense of there being no stickiness anywhere. There's just awareness. There's not a sense of self, self and other. And then thirdly, there's compassion. The heart is there. And it's also a strong teaching in the Thai forest tradition with Achen Cha and some of the other teachers who very much influence what we do here. And in that tradition, uh, it's expressed very simply. It's expressed as there is a kind of primal or radiant awareness which is separate from the contents of our experience. And some of the practice actually is, can you touch this core awareness, access through ordinary awareness that is separate from the contents? And can you sometimes live from that awareness where you more see, oh, I can rest in awareness and be with the passing phenomena and watch them as passing through that large awareness, the awareness stays and the contents change. That's what's being pointed to. Achan Chah said he got that teaching expressed just in a few words from his teacher, Achan Man. And he just stayed with him three days, got that teaching, and that was enough for him to practice. And I'll end with uh, a passage where Achan Cha expresses this teaching. He expresses it through the metaphor, which Jeff Kornfield sometimes liked to use, of taking the one seat, we might say it's the one seat of awareness, and just staying with that one seat. He says, just go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room. Open the doors and windows and see who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptations and stories imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this wisdom and understanding will come. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, 
the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. <laughs> if you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can they come back? Speak with them here, and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. Again, this is an experience that we sometimes can touch. And especially when the conditions are right, (coughs) when there's more quiet, when we're not preoccupied, or sometimes just out of the blue, it can be like that. And we can also practice to have those moments get more frequent. To have all of those practices of thinning of the self tend to point us towards that awareness that is, we might say, fully thinned. So let me invite any uh, reflections or questions. Um, could be about any of those aspects of thinning, the being with the flow experiences, the experience of uh, looking for the thick self, the other ways of thinning the self as well as opening to that larger awareness. So thanks, Anne. We'll use the mic, so let's wait for the mic to come. And we'll, we can have some discussion. So someone in the back here. about the difference, um, if there is one, between flow and concentration. Yeah. And um, it seems to me that flow might also include some of the flotsam in the river, mm-hmm. whereas concentration is more exclusive yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so great question about the... Uh, difference between being with the flow and being with concentration. Yeah, when we're with the flow, we're not trying to make one thing happen. Often with concentration practice, we're just trying to attach the mind to a particular object, such as the breath. Uh, But in this experience of flow, we might say it's more like a kind of choiceless awareness. We often use that term uh, in terms of meditation. And we just are uh, we, we, of course, need a certain level of concentration to track experience. And actually, we can use a significant uh, depth of concentration as helpful to really track without being caught in the thoughts. So concentration matters, but the here we're not trying to just be with one object, fasten the mind on one object, but actually, in a sense, fasten the mind on the flow. Just that, So we're still tracking. We're tracking the flow. Uh, yeah, so so different than concentration. Yeah, thank you. Please, up front. I seem to have um, fine-tuned somewhat the ability to flow so that when something shocking happens, yeah. I feel as if I remain present and open and non-reactive. Yeah. 
And then I leave the scene, and all hell breaks loose yeah. within me. Yeah. Can you speak to that? It, there's a difference yeah. between my accepting what's going on from what once would have been, yeah. but there's still strong reactivity. Yeah, so it sounds like there are, there are experiences with something, let's say, challenging, mm -hmm. where you have uh, an ability just to be with it, where the reactivity is not there mm -hmm. initially. And then maybe, you know, maybe that's because uh, you have a certain... Uh, urgency or presence or something brings you to be with it and then you relax a little bit and uh, we might say old patterns come back mm -hmm. or storylines start predominating mm -hmm. and, and that, that's natural you know, there are, I mean we all have different patterns with this but some people get to experience the reactivity right away <laughs> with difficult experiences <laughs> Right, uh, the joy of not having to wait. <laughs> um, but the um, yeah, so so whatever the pattern is, it's okay. And it's more just to um, how to work skillfully with it. So, so to see if that's one's pattern and to notice that that's already mindfulness, a certain amount of wisdom, and that helps because that means. If something happens like that, uh, you can track it. And then you can also ask yourself or guide yourself, can I track the reactivity starting? Or can I, uh, you know, if it just comes like an ambush, which, which it does sometimes, uh, can I notice what the patterns are? Can I notice what the main storylines are? Because they're going to be familiar. They're, it's uncommon that there will be totally new storylines, right? <laughs> We don't have that many. <laughs> and, and so uh, you can take it as a practice, and you can also you know, remember that practice that we talk about a lot here of not shooting the second arrow. Uh, when something difficult happens, try to notice the tendencies of reactivity, which is a way is, is making something difficult worse. Right? And, and so that, that can be a guiding practice at those moments. And also, I think, always, I think always what I have found, I think I've learned this especially in doing a lot of teaching on the judgmental mind, to always have the mindfulness inquiry wisdom practices uh, go along with heart practices. Like in this case, to offer compassion to oneself, to hold oneself with care. And so, uh, to, and, and sometimes that is called for exclusively. Sometimes when there's been difficulty, it actually doesn't work so well to try to be mindful because you're once just in anguish or distress. And at that time, it's skillful to sometimes use the heart practices as an antidote or to somehow uh, even just to do something which shifts you out of being stuck, which could be to take a walk, talk with someone, etc. Yeah. And so, um, but, but at a certain point, you, you, we can go back to those other tools and take that as a form of the thick self manifesting <coughs> and use those various tools to study it, work with it, bring the heart to it, use skillful speech, etc. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Very complete. Yeah, thank you. Um, please, in the back and then up front. <coughs> I love that last passage that um, about the, the 
chair in the middle. The one seat, yeah. Yeah. Can you help me to find it again? Where would I, how could I reread it? How can you reread it? I can send it if to the Wednesday listserv. Yep. That's one way. And I think if you just uh, Google, take the one seat, Achan Shah, um, uh, you should access it. But I can I can send this along. I have I have a uh, I, ha I have it uh, in a file on my computer, and I'd be happy to send it to people on the listserv. And if anyone's not on the listserv, maybe talk to talk to <coughs> Anne or one of the volunteers at the end. And I'll send that. But yeah, it's a very striking passage, isn't it? You know, or just to, you know, you get a sense, you know, this was the, just this core teaching of the Thai forest tradition that really influences Spirit Rock deeply, which is to get really familiar with everything goes through, the places where the thick self emerges, really notice it, where there's suffering. Achan Cha used to sometimes go to people at his monastery and say, are you suffering today? <laughs> you know, it can sound a little bit cruel, but I think it was done with love. <laughs> and also, you know, ready to remind people of the tools they have. But it, we, you know, it, it was this teaching of really tracking where one gets stuck, looking at, looking at suffering, and opening to the kind of awareness that can just notice everything almost just passing through. And the idea here is that that awareness is uh, increasingly radiant, felt as radiant and as clear and as uh, not tied to any particular content and also coming with caring. Please. At the very beginning, you said that um, when Buddha was asked, is there a self, yeah. that's one trap. And is there no self, that's another trap. Right. And you said there's a middle way. Yeah. And I'm not exactly sure what that middle way is. What yeah. I heard from what you said afterwards is that self is more like a continuum. That yeah. there is this uh, pure awareness at one end and a very thick self yeah. at the yeah. other end. Yeah. Do you have another way to describe what the Buddha's middle way is? Can I, can I talk uh, a little bit more about the, the middle way? Um, I think the Buddha was pointing sort of to a more pragmatic resolution of the middle way. Uh, mm -hmm. We can't talk about it conceptually, but I think he was, you know, and I think I was trying to, to keep things as practical as possible <coughs> by, by seeing, because we can get caught in thinking that there's no self or not self. That was the point of the story, that we can get caught either way. <coughs> and that I, I think the, um, and so another, a few other ways to talk about it is to, we don't deny that there's individuality and that we, uh, for much of our experience, have sensations, thoughts, and so forth that come to us as individuals. You know, without, and, and, uh, and so there's a kind of a self. Uh, one of my Tibetan teachers, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, says in that tradition there's a, there's a teaching of the mere self. It's a kind of individuality where there's individual experience. So I think we're talking about this, the sense of self uh, 
that word becomes thick as an add-on. But it can, you know, it can be, uh, it's important to know, uh, you know, um, I don't know which teacher said it, but he said, you know, develop love and selflessness, but remember your zip code. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, and so there, it, I think the the so there can be a sense of self and individuality, or this is my personal history, or this is my work, or this is my family, or these are the aspirations of this individual. That's a sense of self, but the what's being asked, and, and that's. You know, that's what I think the Buddha wouldn't deny that. You know, but it's really like when do we? What he's pointing to is when we grasp onto it, and that's that would be the other side. So there is a sense. The middle way would be to acknowledge personal history, personal wishes, maybe, uh, and to acknowledge that there's an individual flow here, but not to seize on it, not to grasp onto it. I think that's the. That's a fairly down-to-earth way to talk about it, right? Is that, mm -hmm. And and that would be that would be something like the middle way. So there is there is something here, but we avoid either totally denying it, right, or totally grasping onto it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Anything else before we before we finish? Isn't it an interesting topic? Mm -hmm. Yes. So what I uh, what I wanted to do was to make it practical, you know, uh, and to suggest these practices. So I invite, I invite you to maybe take one or more of the practices, you know, I'll name them again. There are these four areas of a practice. One is to sometimes invite there to be the experience of flow. You can do that by doing that very simple meditation that we did three minutes, trying to just be with sensations, the flow of things, if you notice yourself, you know, latching on to something, let go of it. Just do that. You know, if you get good at it, you can do it a long, longer period of time. It's possible to do that when the concentration is fairly developed for a, quite a long period of time. And that really uh, gives one the sense of just being with that flow experience. You can also look for the sense of flow in, these, in that whole uh, spectrum of individual experiences, which occur naturally at times. When one's immersed in an activity with people you're really connected to, where there's not much sense of self, maybe, at times. In nature, with creative work, creative activities, and so forth. And, and look for those. Try to notice them when they occur. That is very significant. A lot, of, a lot of our practice that we don't always emphasize so much is actually noticing when actually very significant states are there that usually just come and go without us noticing. Right? So try to track for those flow experiences. That's the first. And also cultivate them for initially for brief times. Secondly, track the thick self, which again means to look for where there's stuckness and actually take it, try to take it with some interest. Of course, where we're stuck, where there's most distress, we want to find ways of uh, mitigating the, the distress, right? Of finding some degree of balance. You can't do this practice when the distress is too much or when there's overwhelm. So we, we do it in the middle realm, you know, where, you know, this, this learning theory I like that I sometimes talk about, there's the comfort zone, there's the discomfort zone, and there's the overwhelm or panic zone. 
we practice a lot in the discomfort zone. Can't really practice much in the overwhelm zone. Very important distinction. So we want to look for where we're stuck, where we're not overwhelmed. And then we can practice, we can look, let me look at that reactivity, let me look at that polarization interpersonally, let me study it, let me work with it. The third area it are really is a collection of further places for thinning the self in our metta practice, in our mindfulness, just being not, uh, if we get into a preoccupation with thinking, just let it continually letting go, coming back to that sense of just being with experience. Over and over again, doing metta, doing compassion, doing empathy practice, a lot of other ways we could do that. That's the third area. And then the fourth is seeing if we can sometimes have that experience of taking the one seat, where we, in a way, and it really is a, just a deepening of the flow, what I was calling the flow experience. It's a deepening of that. It's not, not, not really that different. And we, so we can sometimes, maybe with that three-minute flow experience, just sort of sit back and say, can I feel the awareness that is knowing the flow? Can I actually shift my awareness so I'm not so much tracking the contents of the flow, but bring awareness back and track the tracker, track the knower. Maybe not track, actually, but just be with it. Be with that. So it's a kind of bringing awareness to look at itself, which can be quite profound. So that's, that's a, a simple way of doing that. And, and again, noticing moments when they're like that, when there's that deep awareness and you have a sense, this is more basically me, and the contents are passing. You know, and one's not identifying with the passing contents. Again, it's really a deepening of what I was calling the flow experience. So let me just end with uh, inviting us to set intentions of something here was uh, energizing or inspiring or interesting to see how you might take this further, maybe with one or more of those four practices. And, and one would be just quite enough. Just, just work with one of those four. And there also might be, you might have come here, and this all might have sparked something else which has nothing to do with anything I talked about. And that is perfectly fine. And that might have been inspiring for you, and there might be something else that takes form as the intention coming out of the morning. So let the intention be there for a minute or so as we finish. finish with the dedication of merit. May our practice, our inquiry this morning be a benefit for ourselves, be a benefit for those in our lives, and go beyond our personal circles out into the world for the benefit of all others. So ultimately, offering the benefits of our practice to all beings.
thank you so much. And to be continued. <laughs>